follow the leader. We've all played the game, follow the leader. As children, in the home, at school, in the community, we've been involved in that game. But you may be tempted to think it's just a game. But hold on. Think for a moment. It's not just a game. We continue to follow leaders throughout our lifetime. It's not just a children's game. There are those who follow political leaders, spiritual leaders, sports leaders, educational leaders, military leaders, business leaders. People are following leaders. It's not a new phenomenon, and it's not just a kid's game. In the adult years, following the leader, the stakes are higher and the risks are greater. In the passage of Scripture we look at today, both political and religious leaders are strongly and prominently featured. We'll be looking at the political leaders in the 8th century B.C., in the days when Micah, the prophet, was living and serving God. We'll be looking at those two leaders in some detail. The first group of leaders is found in verses 1 to 4. They are the magistrates, the nobles, the civic leaders, the governors. And then the second group of leaders are the religious, spiritual leaders. They come under names like priests, prophets, diviners, seers, seers, those who see what others don't see. Micah served as a prophet of God in the southern kingdom of Judah in the 8th century. So that's the 700s, 750, about 700 B.C. Micah was a contemporary of three other true prophets of God found in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos. We have all lived during times of strong political and religious leaders. Nobody here is an exemption. And whether you're willing to admit it or not, those leaders have had an impact in your life to one degree or another. You might say, oh, not very much. But they've all had an impact. I'm a guy who makes lists. I've made thousands of lists of all kinds of things in life. It's just the way my mind works. So I've, in my mind, listed through the different presidents of the United States during my lifetime prime ministers who've served during my lifetime, spiritual leaders who I've never met but have had an impact, and then, of course, spiritual leaders who I've known, who have mentored me. Leaders have a key part to play in our life. While Micah was concerned for the political situation and the social issues of his day, there was something far deeper, and that was the moral and spiritual issues. Politicians don't deal with moral and spiritual issues per se. They deal with more of the social stuff. But the deeper level of need in any society is the moral level, the spiritual level, and somebody's got to speak to that. It was the prophet's responsibility to do that, but we'll find out sadly Tragically, they did not fulfill their role, at least the prophets addressed here in this portion. So 
So I'm going to open my Bible, if you would turn to yours, into Micah chapter 3. The first word, the main word in the message, is the word hear, H-E-A-R. In the vernacular, I would say something like, hey, you now, listen up. And Sunday is a very good day to listen up and to hear what God says through his word. The state of corruption had permeated to the very core of national life in Israel. And the ones who were leading the troops on this were the leaders, the political and religious leaders. Now, if you have your heart, mind, conscience, and soul engaged in life, I hope that you will agree with me that we need to acknowledge that there are problems in leadership. And that's why I've entitled this passage A Crisis of Leadership in the Land, because it really is a summary of the whole lesson here. And likewise, not just acknowledging that, but decrying the crisis and the state of leadership in the 21st century. I believe this portion of Scripture will help us in the early part of the 21st century AD to know how we're to deal with not just the social problems, but the deeper problems, the moral and the spiritual issues that are plaguing Canadians in our world today. May the Spirit of God draw us closer to Him and to His will on this matter because we are facing a troubling situation in the land. And I personally, John Scorgy, that's my name, I, I'm not a highly political guy. I've got to be interested in in something about politics, because the Bible does address it. My dad was strong into politics. I, I was not. But I have to be interested in what's going on. It affects all of us. It affects me. The first point of the message, Micah confronts the political leaders. Pastor Jake had said two weeks ago that the land was experiencing financial economic prosperity, and that is correct. But in the midst of that, there can be some deception, thinking that everything has gone right, everything's rosy, everything's just fine, hunky-dory. But not so as we read this chapter of Scripture. Micah, by the Spirit of God, is addressing the leaders at their heart level, their heart level. Micah's graphic description of the prevailing corruption in that day is probably best suited to the reign of King Ahaz, the middle king uh, quoted in chapter 1, the three kings of Judah that were living during the, the life of Micah. The verses should be up there on the screen, verses 1 to 4. I'm not going to read them now again, but just keep looking up there from time to time when I refer to certain things, like... The first incriminating question of the passage, should you not know justice? Mike is talking to the leaders, and the affirmative answer should be, well, you guys better. You guys better know what justice is. 
You're to be leading, not only by administration, but by example. What is justice? Well, don't equate justice with judgment, with punishment, with condemnation. Those are not four synonyms, all four different words. Justice is a word that has to do with the living out of the law of God, ideally, in the land. Justice is the carrying out of God's will among human beings. Judgment is another matter, a little bit of overlap, but justice is something else. I don't have it up on the screen there, but James, in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, is the very best New Testament commentary on what justice is. To minister to the orphans and the widows and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. In other words, having a heart for God in terms of social concern and also a concern for godliness, holiness. Are you the kind of Christian that is concerned about others? And are you concerned about your walk before God, before others in this world? Micah's question in verse 1 implies the answer, yes, you should have known, guys. You should have known that what justice was and what it is and to carry that out. But just the opposite was happening. Miscarriages of justice were taking place all kinds of places throughout the land of Israel. The leaders were not living up to nor living in line with God's will, God's law, God's covenant, and therefore they couldn't possibly be administering justice in the land. They couldn't possibly. They were on the wrong side, and yet they were the leaders at that time. And so Micah rose up by the Spirit and addressed powerful persons in whom great authority and wealth was centered. Great wealth and authority can turn a lot of people wrong very fast. It happens all the time. How does he describe them? Into verse 2, you who hate the good and love evil. Well, that's just the very opposite of what it should be. We should love the good and hate the evil, but not these leaders. They hated the good. They loved the evil. Let me put it this way. They loved the evil principles and practices, the evil people. And they hated the good principles, the good practices, and the good people. Now, when I say good people, it's a relative term. We're all sinners. We all stand in the need of God's grace. But I hope you, you, you understand what I'm saying. There are people who are trying to live a life to God's glory. So Micah is putting his finger right on their hearts. And some Sundays, some more than others, God is putting his finger on our hearts. Not every message that comes from a pulpit is going to be a message of comfort. Sometimes it's got to be a message of conviction if a church is going to be true to God's word. In verses 2b and 3, some of the most graphic and bold words of the Old Testament are found as Micah describes 
the dealings of these leaders with the people, the small farm owners and uh, some of the peasant people and so on, who they were taking advantage of and exploiting. And Micah's words here, you don't have to read it too many times to get the picture. It's not complicated. It's graphic. It's bold. What he's describing is how cannibals treat their victims. They, they kill them. They cut them up. They butcher them. And they eat them. And that's exactly the picture in these two verses. I'm not going to spend a long time on it. Uh, I'll just say this very quickly. It doesn't take anything from away from the imagery, the savage imagery. When I say this, that these words have to be understood figuratively, even though they're graphic and powerful. I don't believe that the leaders were killing the people and eating them. It's a picture of exploiting, taking advantage, and robbing people of everything they have. That's the sense here in those two verses. On to verse 4. Because of their corrupt leadership, Micah addresses by the Spirit what's coming their way, what's coming down the pipe for these guys. And what was going to happen? Well, we see the coming punishment was going to be in line with their leadership. Uh, they would come to the place in their life where they would cry out to God, but God would not hear them. As they had turned a deaf ear to others crying out to them, so God would turn a deaf ear to them. I'm, I'm, uh, my dad had poor hearing, my three brothers, the brothers, we all have poor hearing. I've just had hearing aids put on the last few weeks. I don't hear everything. And sometimes we don't hear the plea, the cry of those who are earnestly in need. Well, these leaders were not responding well to what they were hearing. They were turning a deaf ear. So God said, okay. And it comes out in Proverbs 21, 13. If that verse is on the screen, it just says in that book of Proverbs that the one who turns a deaf ear to the poor will himself be dealt with the same way. I'm not, I'm paraphrasing the scripture, but you look it up, that's exactly what is being said there. These leaders could not reasonably expect that God would pour out on them the blessings of the covenant when God had clearly stipulated in the days of Moses, as Ken said last week at the very beginning of his message, God said to Moses, if the people obey, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll judge you. Those aren't words of comfort there on the second part, but they are a blessing when we fulfill God's word. So the political leaders, those in government positions, were corrupt. But it wasn't just the political leaders. It was the religious leaders, and that's my second point, verses 5 to 7. Throughout human history... Religious leaders have held great power and wielded great influence on the peoples of the world. Tremendous power, sometimes more so than even political leaders. Now, in the 21st century, we live in a different time of history, and uh, religious leaders are losing uh, incrementally their grip upon the peoples of the world as more and more become 
secular, humanistic, ungodly. Now, the five or six world religions, they'll probably be intact until Jesus comes again. The cults are multiplying. There are more cults today than when I was first born, and they will continue to increase. We have to keep our spiritual antennae up constantly. You can't just take a day off. You can't. Because as we'll see here, these religious leaders were responsible for leading God's people away. They should have been the watchdogs of the theocracy of Israel. Theocracy meaning rule of God. Uh, God didn't want his people to have a king. Well, the people had other ideas they wanted, and out of God's long suffering, he gave them a king. But God was to be their king through the prophets and the judges. But these prophets weren't fulfilling their role. Verse 5, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, astray from God's law, God's covenant, God's blessings, God's will. That's the responsibility laid upon Spiritual religious leaders is great because people sometimes follow leaders blindly. We have to be very careful. So what was the message of these religious hucksters, charlatans, imposters, as I'll call them? Why? What, was it, what were they saying? Well, right there in verse 5, they cry peace. Uh, now peace. <laughs> Isn't peace a good message? Wouldn't everybody love to hear the message of peace this coming Christmas? That message of peace will be proclaimed. But it has to be proclaimed properly, rightly, in context. Peace comes through Christ, who made peace for us. We don't make peace with God ourselves. Christ made peace for us. We accept the terms of the peace negotiation at the, at the cross, the blood of Christ shed for us. So people sometimes use that expression, have you made your peace with God? Well, nobody makes their peace with God. Christ made peace with God for our sake. And we go by the way of the cross, by the way of substitution, his sacrifice for us. So even though the word peace in the message sounds great, positive, what the world needs, everything has to be in context. Because these false prophets had no ground to speak peace because they were talking about a social peace there. They weren't talking spiritual peace. They were talking about having peace with their neighbors, the nations round about, freedom from uh, pestilence and famine and war and invasion. That was their sense of the message of peace. But they had no ground for proclaiming that message because the leaders were corrupt and the people were following them. Only peace could come if they were following the will and law and covenant of God. The, the imagery there in verse 5 is that they proclaimed peace when their bellies were full, when they had something to eat and the people were paying them. But when their stomachs began to grumble, uh, sorry, rumble, then they started to grumble. And they would start to make war or declare war against God. But 
the false prophet's message of peace would be discredited when the Assyrian army from the north would come rumbling down ten thousands of soldiers and horses coming down south into the northern tribes of Israel and taking the people captive in 722 B.C. when Micah was alive. So the message of peace would be discredited then. It would also be discredited outside the timeline of the life of Micah about 150 years later in 586 B.C. when the Babylonian Empire from further east came rumbling in to the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, known better as Judah because it was the bigger tribe. So the message of peace, you always have to be careful. What's it coming from? And what do they mean by that? In the days of Micah, they had no right to declare that message. And in verses 6 and 7, the punishment would, that would come their way is this. Instead of having light from God, revelation, to declare to the people, night would go down upon the prophets. The lights would be turned out. And who was turning out the lights? It was God himself turning out the lights so that the seers couldn't see and the diviners couldn't divine and the prophets couldn't proclaim. They'd have nothing to say. That would be their punishment. And what would result, again, in verse 7? Shame. Because their prophetic reputation would be in tatters, crumble. They'd have nothing to say to the people. By way of logical deduction, the corrupt leaders will face hard times. And those who follow them blindly will also face hard times. I'm going to ask a question of you. I'm not asking you to respond audibly, verbally, but I am asking you the question. Have you ever been led astray? Or has anyone ever targeted you to lead you astray? If we were to put up our hand, and I'm not asking you to do that, I would certainly have to put up my hand. I've had people try to lead me astray in my lifetime, away from God, Christ, and the Word of God, from the true faith. I, I'm probably, I'm sure that we all have had that experience. So Micah has addressed the political leaders. It needed to be done. He did it. The religious leaders had to be addressed. They were. Micah confronted them, put his finger right on their heart. We come now to verse 8. And make, Micah shares from an autobiographical perspective, out of his own life, something of why he's doing what he's doing. It begins with the word but. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. The word but changes everything. The word but is a very little word, but I can tell you right now that in any written document, the word but is a pivotal point in the passage turning the direction of the passage almost opposite. It could be totally opposite 
with the word but. And even in a verbal conversation, when you raise the word but, you've changed the direction. And that's what happened here. He's not doing it in any kind of pride or boasting, but he's saying, you guys should have been proclaiming the truth. I am proclaiming the truth by the power of God's spirit. And I, I say, he's not doing that in pride. He's doing it in humility. He's saying, I'm following the spirit. I'm seeking to follow the spirit. And we are at odds. You guys are proclaiming the wrong message. And so he makes clear to anyone who will listen that he was called of God and that he was determined to fulfill God's calling. There are people who are called of God to do certain things and they've forgotten the second part of the plan. You have to affirm that call and respond to the call and say, yes, yes. We need to respond affirmatively to what God is calling us to do. And every servant of God needs that divine encouragement from God. Because every servant of God will find dark days. There will be dark days for every servant. But he could say by the Spirit, but I'm filled with the Spirit. And with these three other things that are totally linked and directly linked, to the Spirit, and that is strength, justice, and courage. I think those are the best words to render the words here in the ESV. Every true follower of God stands in need of God's Spirit, dwelling, working, convicting, guiding, helping, teaching, leading, encouraging, empowering. We need God's Spirit for God's work. We cannot do it alone. And so Micah was not coming up and saying, I'm protesting all on my own. I mean, he would just be bowled over by the political leaders, the religious leaders of his day. He wasn't doing it in his strength. He was doing it by the power of God's Spirit. At the end of verse 8, Micah expresses his mandate from God. He says, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Not an easy assignment. You must agree with me on that. Not an easy assignment to confront anybody ever with their sin. Is that simple? No, that's not simple. That's very difficult. And that's why he needed the Spirit of God working, speaking through him. If you ever confront anybody with their sin... You better have prayed before that the Spirit of God will work in them. Or you could be bloodied. You could be attacked. We must go in the power of the Spirit of the Lord. So he stood up to the power structures of his day, political and religious. And he stood there for the cause of righteousness and spoke God's word. I personally believe that God's people will always be the minority in a society. That's not a pessimistic view. That's not, because I'm not saying just a tiny. I believe, I personally believe that the, the kingdom of God is great, and it will be in every tribe and nation. It's a great work. It's not local. It's not provincial. It, it's among the nations of the world, but God's people will be the minority. Well, it's not easy to stand up when you're in the minority and address 
the powerful majority, especially when you're not invited, when you're not welcome to do that. Well, let's come to the last point. Micah spells out the dire consequences in verses 9 through 12. In the final paragraph, Micah puts both groups, religious and political, under careful microscopic scrutiny. He addresses them together. He sort of puts the guys all together in the same room, religious and political, and he speaks to them and he's saying, you know, in verse 9, he addresses the heads, that means the leaders, or the rulers, in verse 9, and then in verse 11, the priests and the prophets. So he's talking to the rulers, the leaders. And one common thread links the two groups together. What is it? Money, money, money. Three words are used for that in verse 11. Judgment for a bribe, teach for a price, divination for money. That's why I've put up on the screen there, money, money, money. For so many leaders, money speaks louder to them than God. 1 Timothy 6.10, the Apostle Paul by the Spirit said, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Everybody here has heard that verse. So many in the world have heard that verse outside the church. It's right there. It's true. The love of money. Everybody needs money, okay? That's how the world goes round currently in a currency system. <clears throat> we don't have a bartering system. We need money to live. But if you fall in love with money, you're, you're in trouble. I remember being in the home of a young couple back about 20 years ago now, I was paying a pastoral visit to this young couple, and he was a financial advisor. I wasn't going to him because he was a financial advisor. I was just visiting to a young couple new to the church. And in the course of the conversation, he said, quite honestly, I love money. And I said, you know the verse as well as I. Paul said, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And he sort of laughed or snickered there. That was 20 years ago. He said that in his own living room. This is 20 years later. That man's marriage is long over, divorced long ago from a very beautiful, a physically beautiful woman, very beautiful. Two fine sons look handsome sons. Those sons want nothing to do with their dad. They want nothing to do with him. Yeah, he told me he loves money. We need money, but we don't love money. Use money. Money is to be used in the best proper sense. So into verse 11, we're getting near toward the end here. Um, he says, yet you lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster should come upon us. The, the religious and political leaders had the same sense of false security, where they felt and they believed that the temple that stood in Jerusalem, which was Solomon's temple that he built in his day, that that temple, which was the tangible and physical 
sign expression of God's presence with his people, that because of that temple, they wouldn't have to face war or famine or peril of any kind. How wrong they were. How wrong they were. You can't put your trust in a building. This building is built for the glory of God, and it's special in that sense. Okay? This is the house of God in that sense. But this building of wood and brick and mortar will not keep you, won't keep me from the wrath of God if we're not covered by the blood of Christ. Okay? You could sit in this building never go outside. You'll no further be covered against the, the wrath of God if Christ's blood doesn't intervene and you don't trust Christ. And that's what Micah was saying. You guys are wrong-headed. And because you're wrong-headed, you're wrong-hearted. And you've got this thing all tips upside down. You don't trust in a building. You trust in God and in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12 begins on the word, therefore. And in the context of this chapter of Scripture, the word therefore is a scary word. Now, the word therefore is not always scary. Not always at all. But sometimes it is. And in this passage, it is. Because what Micah is saying, for you political leaders and religious leaders, therefore, because of your wrong-hearted ways, your unjust ways, your cruelty and oppression of the people, Not only will you leaders face the sledgehammer of God's wrath, but the people that you have led, the people who have followed you, will also. And that's a certain concept that we don't talk about too much today, but I will mention it now. It's not in the passage, but it's the principle of corporate solidarity, corporate solidarity. As the leaders lead and the followers follow, okay, you follow that leader, you also have to pay the price. And that's scary. But that's what was going to happen because the whole nation would go into captivity. God was going to judge. You'll remember that Jesus, when here on earth, predicted the destruction of the temple that Matthew records in the 24th chapter of his gospel record. Again, everything in context, you ask the question, why would Jesus predict the destruction of the temple? Well, just read chapter 23, which is Jesus' address to the religious leaders of his day in Judaism. I've heard thousands of messages in my lifetime. One of the most powerful was of a speaker during chapel when I was in Bible college a long time ago, speaking to the students aspiring to be missionaries and pastors from Matthew 23, the woes against the religious leaders. Wow. It was pretty silent after that 
message from the scriptures. And I don't know who that person was. I can't remember who the man was who spoke. But I remember the basic message. Chapter 23 comes before 24. The political leaders, religious leaders in Judaism, because the religious leaders in Judaism were also religious, religious political. There was an intertwining and a threading together. Leaders in Judaism. We come now to the applications. So what do I need to do? What do, how do I need to respond? Having read this portion, having heard this message from Micah chapter 3, 1 to 12. Well, I can see quite readily six brief applications. The first are cries against injustice. God is just, and he does hear the cries against injustice. And God understands anger against injustice. Everybody's different, but we all have those buttons that make us upset or angry. I'll tell you mine. One of mine right now. It's corruption in high places. Since a teenager, I, I could get very angry about corruption in high places. I have been all my life, most of my life. God understands that kind of anger. But we have to be careful that we not allow that anger to squelch the flame of love for the people who need that, need that love too. Those who are oppressors, those who are unjust and cruel, I can tell you right now, it, they still need God's mercy and love. Okay? So in our anger, we have to work that out, and God's Spirit will guide us in doing that. But there's a place for crying out against injustice. And then secondly, our need of character. Character is essential to all leadership. Anyone who's a leader can never say, nah, leadership, it doesn't really, that's not important for character. Oh, a coach of a hockey team in town might think, oh, my character doesn't matter. All I'm teaching these young girls or guys is hockey skills. No siree. If you've been tuned into the, the news of the week, and I'm an NHL hockey fan, uh, you know what's going on. This week, a huge story has emerged midweek. Leaders who didn't stand for what was right. The Stanley Cup was more important than person being abused by a leader in a certain organization. I will mention no names right now, but I'm, I'm saying character is crucial. If character is not part of the equation, where does leadership go? It goes downhill, spiraling quite quickly. In fact, it goes faster and faster the further you go down. Character is crucial. And character is a lot easier and to lose than it is to gain. It takes time to gain and build character. But you can lose it in a night. You can lose it in a day, in a 24-hour period, in an hour, just like that. Our need of character, it's not just for the leaders. It's for all of us. Thirdly, our leaders require prayer. 
God's people who believe in the power of prayer, which is really the power of God in answer to prayer, must pray for our political leaders and our religious leaders. And we need to do it regularly as Paul, by the Spirit, instructed us in First and Second Timothy. How can a political leader fulfill his or her mandate, a religious leader his or her mandate, if character is not part of the equation, I can tell you, they're on a, a dead end. They will not fulfill their mandate if they leave character at home or somewhere else. All leaders, no matter what form of leadership they take, in whatever realm of life it is exercised, every leader needs to be characterized by virtue. And by virtue, I'm not saying perfection. Because nobody's expecting perfection of anybody. We're, we're, we're not expecting that. We know better. But we are expecting someone to set an example. Not perfect, but on the right track. On the right track. Leaders need to be characterized by honesty and integrity, skillfulness and competence, Fairness, wisdom, and understanding. A fourth application, our need of God's spirit. A whole message could be given on that, but I'm just emphasizing again to know what is right, to speak what is right, to do what is right, and to fulfill that in this corrupt world requires the intervention and involvement directly God's spirit. Number five, our obedience of faith. Real faith in God will always manifest itself in obedience. God's people need to live in accordance with God's word. And the most conspicuous fruit of real faith, authentic faith, is obedience. You could serve in different capacities in this church or in this community until you die. But if you have no heart for God's word, no willingness to submit to God's will, then we're wasting our time because God wants obedience. These leaders should have been the example of those who knew what it was to bring together creed, what you believe, and conduct, how you behave. And when the gap narrows between creed and conduct, what do we call that? What do we call that? Well, we call that integration. We call that integrity. When it comes together. And it's not always going to be together perfectly all the time. I, I know that. But I'm saying it needs to be narrowing the gap between what you believe and how you behave, how I believe and how I behave. The last application, our wonder at God's wrath. You say, your wonder? Yes, wonder. There's a lot of people discount the whole idea of judgment, and they have created all kinds of philosophies and cults to circumvent future judgment. And that's why there's a whole lot of people growing in number, who believe that when you die, you die, and that's the end of everything. Why? Because it takes care of judgment. 
But the Bible, Old and New Testaments, talk about judgment, about justice. The wrong things will be made right. Things will be made straight that have been crooked for a long time. Justice is coming because God in Christ is coming. And the only exemption from coming wrath is the blood of Christ and your faith in him alone. In conclusion, the inspired words of Micah, all of seven chapters, but the chapter we've looked at here this morning, chapter 3, needs to find a resting place in our hearts. It does. It does. These words of Micah challenge every attempt to misuse the service of God for our own profit. There have been people who made millions on the Christian faith. And it's wrong. Don't do that for your own financial gain. These words of Micah emphasize the proper balance between personal godliness and social justice. You can't just say, I just have my quiet time with God and I read and I pray, but I don't care about anybody else. Well, that's not biblical. That's not right. There has to be a concern for others who are in need of various kinds. It's a needy, needy world. These words of Micah warn. They warn us against the complacency of taking God's love and lordship for granted. He loves you, but he's also Lord. It's not that you trust Jesus as Savior at some point in your life, and then four years later or 25 years later, he becomes Lord. I'll tell you this right now, straight up. If he's not Lord... He's not Savior either. It's the only way it can be. He has to be Lord if he's going to be Savior too, and vice versa. And finally, these words of Micah encourage us to increasingly reflect the heart of God in what we think, what we say, what we do. We all fall short. The speaker this morning falls short. So do you. But which way are we going? Which direction are we going? Let's narrow the gap between creed and conduct and be a blessing to the world and not a stumbling block. Remember, follow the leader is not just a game that kids play. Everybody follows leaders. I close with the words of the greatest leader of all. When Jesus said, follow me. Jesus said, follow me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we have looked at this portion of holy, holy scripture, it's been troubling, it's been convicting, it's been unsettling in some ways. And even though the main message has addressed leaders, 
all of us are involved in some way or another because we're either leaders or we're followers, and if we're followers, we have to be careful who we follow. Lord, help us to hear the words of Jesus again this morning. When he said to Peter and Andrew, James and John, on the shores of Galilee, follow me. We realize, Lord, that in the earthly realm there are earthly rulers, governors, there are earthly religious spiritual leaders, and there are other kinds of leaders we've mentioned too. But help us never to forget that in all of life, we would be most wise and most glorifying to you if we both hear and heed the words of the greatest leader of all, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lord of glory, the Redeemer and coming King, when he said in sandals on the shore of Galilee, follow me. Let us do that, O God. Give us grace, strength, courage to fulfill our mandate and mission in this broken world as Micah did in his day. May we do it in ours for the glory and honor and praise of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.